Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Rachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hi, and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. Today is Monday, August the 21st, 2023. And Dr. Tim is off this week. I uh, hold the space for him. He's having a procedure done on his knee tomorrow. And um, so we're doing pre-recorded shows for him this week, but Michael and I will be live for the second hour. So today he's asked me to play Guy Finley. So enjoy. This is Mind Shifters Radio. I'm your host for the first hour, Tim Hayes. And um, we're... Uh, grateful to have Guy Finley joining us today. In our Mind Shifters radio show, we promote, we teach, and we support people in using very practical tools for improving the quality of their lives. And it's because our our only guest for today, uh, Guy Finley, talks so much about how there is nothing more practical than true spirituality that it's a great honor to welcome Guy. Guy Finley is an internationally renowned spiritual teacher and the best-selling self-realization author. His books and audio programs have sold over 2 million copies worldwide in 26 languages. His seminal work, The Secret of Letting Go, is considered a spiritual classic. Guy is the founder and director of Life of Learning Foundation, based in Merlin, Oregon, and as well as being the host of the Life of Learning Foundation's Wisdom School, which is an online self-study program for personal self-discovery. His new book, Relationship Magic, Waking Up Together, is a practical guide that provides couples with the unique, enlightened tools to transform their relationships from mundane to magical. For more information, we encourage you to visit GuyFinley.org or Relationship Magic Book, all one word, RelationshipMagicBook.com. And it's a great honor for me to have Guy with us because, as I said, he, he understands the same kinds of tools and principles behind the tools that we teach in the MindShifter support groups and on MindShifter Radio and the tools that Dr. Michael Rice makes available on his website, whyagain.org. And beyond that, Guy brings a delightful writer's, artist's eye, a storyteller's voice to these deep truths. So, please, Guy, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, you're very welcome, Tim. I'm glad to have the time with you. 
I, I would like to take a moment and let you save your voice a little and read for our audience a little bit of why I say you have the artist's eye and the storyteller's voice. From your <laughs> I'm book, all ears. <laughs> from your book, it says, All of our relationships are a kind of mirror. Standing before the mirror of our relationships, a ceaseless reflection of that relationship as it unfolds, we are given to see something about who we are in that moment. In this way, each relationship serves to reveal to us something we may not yet have realized as being true about our present nature. In other words, whenever I'm around you, there's the prospect of being introduced to a me, parts of myself, that I have not yet met. Here's an example of this powerful idea and how it works its magic in us. Maybe we're on a nature hike. When we round a bend, suddenly finding ourselves standing at the foot of a towering waterfall, it's majestic. A delicate mist covers everything, catching the sunlight, creating a million tiny prisms of colored light. There's never been such a moment for us because we have never been who we are in that same instant. In such moments, we are filled with an incomparable sensation that is one and the same as meeting a whole new level of our being. Or perhaps we look up to see an unending night sky. And in our relationship with that dark expanse, we experience the feeling of something deep and vast within us. We sense the presence of something eternal. In that moment, we are given a glimpse of something we would never see otherwise. The timelessness we feel stirring in us has always lived in us. Much as in the fairy tale, Sleeping Beauty is awakened from her deep sleep by the kiss of Prince Charming, so can all of our relationships with everyone, with anyone, serve to stir us awake, not only that we might experience some deeper, truer sense of self, but so that through that same awakening, we may touch and be touched by a higher order of love that can be realized in no other way. Can this man write or what? So that's why we encourage people to check out your book, Guy. We have people on the call who are studies students of this kind of work and anxious to hear more about your book and why you wrote it and how you got to this place. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Tim. That was, I, I enjoyed listening to you read the, read the book. Look, we are, all of us, I like to say, sort of <clears throat> paraphrase, I guess it was something in the Quran. Uh, birds fly, fish swim, men pray. Uh, we are, as human beings, 
created to uh, realize in our lifetime a relationship with the world around us, all of the people, all of the circumstances, every last touch. We are created to realize within us is a, a, a possibility that thought will never touch. We know because of the fine example that you read, not because it's mine, but it's something all of us can relate to. We know without taking thought that those moments are supernal. They're sublime. I, I, I'm asleep in one respect until something stirs me. And in the moment of that stirring, I'm awakened to an aspect of my own consciousness that without that moment, without that mirror, I don't know. Which means that in that same moment, and this is a very important idea, what I realize, while I've never realized it before, has always lived within me. Which means that my, my being, the potential of my consciousness, already contains with it, within it everything that I will ever experience. It's, it's profound if we can wrap our mind around it. There is no experience that we will ever have that isn't already in our consciousness. That means that the task isn't to go out and create experience so as to perpetually realize, but rather to start recognizing that relationships in this life, whether they're just the relationship of looking out the window as I am right now at the morning break in Southern Oregon on the mountain, or it's the relationship of talking with someone that we love. Those moments are revelations. And every revelation, if we understand it properly, means something that we have never seen or met before in ourselves is suddenly brought up into our awareness. In that moment, and that's key to the book and everything else that I write and teach about, we have a, a, a choice. And the choice is, what do I do with that revelation? For instance, when I'm with my wife, who I've been with for nearly 40 years, there are certain things about her that uh, I know before she starts talking that what she's going to say, because I, I can see a certain corner of her mouth turn up, uh, a twinkle in her eye, and I know she's going to start talking about something she loves. <clears throat> and I already feel that, that, that happiness because in that moment my wife is stirring in me a corresponding part that finds contentment with what she manifests. That's a wonderful relationship. But in that moment where I love the revelation of that part of myself that my wife awakens me to, in that same moment, what if her little mouth turns down? What if she has a, a look in her eye that says, I need to talk to you about something serious? In that same moment, it's a revelation. The task is, what do I do with that revelation? Because one, I embrace wildly for being something that shows me something about myself I like to see. And the other, I reject. And not because my wife is to be blamed for her attitude, 
but because it's stirring in me something that parts of me do not want to know about. So when I reject the revelation, it's the same as rejecting self-realization, and that's to the point of it. Relationships are the mechanism, if you want, through which a human being becomes self-realized only when they understand the axiom, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Well, that means every shape and form of the teacher, not just the one that we like. Wonderful. It's it's this, the idea that you're laying out opens the possibility that I can be okay with whatever unfolds as long as I use it as a teaching moment. Yes. Look, in, in, in one respect, we, we say things like, I'm going to use it as a teaching moment because our assumption is, whether we admit to it or not, is that somehow the world is revolving around outside of me and that <clears throat> it, here come these select moments and I should be open to them and receive the lesson. And that is the truth at one level, Tim. But the truth is the world isn't revolving around me outside of me. The world is inside of me. There is no self without relationship. I, I beg everybody to think about it for a moment. That's part of the old koan from Buddha's work. You know, if a tree drops a branch in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? What he was alluding to is the idea that everything in existence, everything that does exist, exists because of a mutual dependency. And without something to be aware of a moment, there is no moment, which means that the moment we're aware of is unfolding in our own consciousness. So the world I see is not outside of me. That's the biggest thing, Tim. That's the secret of gradually letting relationships free us, fulfill us, perfect us. We think the world we see is outside of us. It's the nature of our nature. Our senses divide us up into the things we see and feel and the self that thinks it feels and sees them. But the truth is, it's not that way at all. The world we see is not outside of us. And when we can begin to understand that, which we just, if I look up at that night sky and I feel the depth and breadth of an endless ocean of stars, I, I look out the window and here come the girls, uh, about eight or nine deer that I've hand-raised over 12 years. Why do I want to go outside every single morning to meet the girls? Because when I'm with them, the, the union of their being and the consciousness in me that is revealed through that integration produces a revelation of something that is already inside of me. So though the girls are outside, the night sky seems to be outside. Where is my experience of it? And isn't my experience of it my consciousness of it? If we understood that, we would stop blaming people, Tim. We would, we would realize that there are parts of us that are hurt, things that have remained concealed, carried through time 
because we didn't understand our relationship to life, but we would gradually take every last one of these moments and allow the moment to do what it's intended to do, which is to introduce us to ourselves so that we have the overall, the whole experience of the moment instead of the one that this lower self selects to prove that it's right or wrong or someone else needs to change. Wonderful. Wonderful. I have the, um, I have a, a, a highlight from your book that says, as long as we believe that anyone else is responsible for our sense of well-being, we will feel it's our right to keep spurring them on until they get it right. Exactly. And this reminds me of Dr. Rice's definition of codependence. It says, whenever I think or speak as though someone else is responsible for what I'm feeling, what I'm actually creating with my own thought, I have just created a codependent relationship. That's correct. Now, the only thing I would add to that is that we need to understand, and this is to the heart of my book, that it isn't I who creates a codependent relationship. That would be like saying it's I who jumps in a fire. It's I who agrees to, to become an addict. There is a level of consciousness that we are presently living in and from, and it is asleep. It does not understand why it exists. It only has for its reason for existing the identity that is perpetuated through the illusion of this separation. So that if I become in a relationship that creates codependency, and all of us have and probably still are to some extent in a relationship like that, it means because I didn't know what I was doing. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's so, uh, how do you say, it's an amazing thing. You talk to people all the time. Everybody says they want to learn. Everybody says they want to be realized. They want to grow. But the moment that comes along that indicates something's going on, here's an example. I just posted this on Instagram. Imagine a, an aspirant comes to see his teacher and says, Teacher, I, 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 you know what, I've been... I'm as thick as a brick. I know I'm, I'm, I want to wake up. I'll do anything. I mean anything. I've come to that point. Please tell me what, I'm, what must I do to go beyond the point I'm at, to which the teacher turns to the student and says, are you sure you want the answer? Well, of course I do. I wouldn't have come if I didn't. teacher says, all right. The problem is, you see, that virtually every moment in one way or another Something in you is denying reality, to which point the student says, I do not deny reality. <laughs> <laughs> now, does, does the student know what he's saying when he summarily resists something that challenges <laughs> the image that he has of himself? Or is the student asleep and the teacher is offering him a chance to at least consider that because of the images, the ideas, the beliefs that he has about himself, that he summarily rejects any moment 
that threatens that identity. That's the task, and that's what relationships provide, a way in which we can be suddenly standing in the light of an understanding that we have brought with us, in quotes, this level of consciousness has carried forward from time something that no longer serves any purpose at all. And since it serves no purpose in the real moment, other than God willing, us understanding it's time to set it down, then if it's still acting in our name, saying, I do not deny reality, I am not defensive, I am not afraid, I am not angry, fill in the blank, if it's still doing that, then that's a limitation on the revelation of the moment. Because the revelation didn't come. Teacher wasn't judging the student. Teacher was saying, look, you know, dear boy, I love you, but you still have this incredibly defensive attitude born out of any moment that threatens some precious image you have of yourself, including being someone who wants to be realized. Because if you could see that you just got angry at being told that you're defensive, then you'd realize that there was in that moment a chance for you to see something has come with you into this moment. Here it is. Will you take a look at it? Will you let the light show you this, this limitation so that you can begin to realize it isn't the teacher's opinion, his approval I need. What I need is to wake up from the dream that without the approval, without something confirming me, I'm no one. Then we have a chance, Tim, to, to use every moment of our life for the purpose in which it is given to us. As you're talking, I remember a story you told about the roving reporter who went out and discovered a road that wasn't on his map, and as he drove down the road, he saw people lined up standing in front of walls, banging their heads. And when he went out to try and talk to them and find out why they don't just walk around the wall, a wall came up in front of him. And the one person that he saw walk through the wall when he finally got his attention, the old man came back and he said, you know, how did you walk through that wall? And the old man says, oh, it's nothing, just 11 words. Who I have been is powerless to take me any further. Yeah. That's and it. you get and you get at that so beautifully in so many different ways in the book and especially in terms of relationships. Yes. Because that's look, what do we what do we fight over? What do any two people fight over? Not just man and woman, any two people, any two political parties, any two countries. What do we fight well, over? I don't know about I don't know about you, but I fight over who's right. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly it, Tim. Because I have, in that moment, I'm look, I'm sitting uh, at a restaurant and uh, minding my own business, and for whatever reason, somebody walks over and says, aren't you so-and-so? And maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And I, I might say, well, no, you've, you've mistaken me for someone else. And then that person says, no, no, you've got to be. And any moment in which something challenges us, there's this sort of fight-or-flight reaction. belongs to a, 
lower level of consciousness clearly, no different than the deer or the lion. And in that moment where that, that, that part of the brain fires off, it, it feels threatened and it can only resist the rest of the moment that it sees as being a threat to it. But if we examine that moment, what we discover is that, and this is very important in our relationships with our partner, the reason that I'm threatened in an argument is because my identity is vested in my belief that you have to be what I expect you to be. And I don't realize that you need me to be who you need me to be, which is really a level of codependency that's sort of innate in these earlier stages of a relationship with our partner. Because we, we, we bow, we, what are the, we, we, we bound, we not bound, we we're bounded, <laughs> bonded. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> we bonded in the early days because everything you said and did tickled me pink. Do you, everybody remembers falling in love. There's nothing that anyone can possibly do to you in those early days that you don't fight find delightful. <laughs> and even the things you don't immediately like. You bury them because there's too much stuff going on that's good. I call that the woo-hoo stage of a relationship. <laughs> you know, that's where, for all intents and purposes, you are bringing out the best of me. I didn't know I could be so fascinated. I didn't know I could feel that kind of you know, thrill. I had no idea my body could experience that kind of jubilation on and on. But by natural processes, that woo-hoo stage starts to morph into what we could call the boo-hoo stage, where instead of the best of me, you begin to bring out the rest of me, where parts of me that now have kind of, uh, what does B.B. King say, the thrill is gone? You know, now I'm starting to not just notice these what I call imperfections in you, but they're starting to bother me. So I go from this wonderful, can't talk to you enough, be around you enough, to having these buttons that I didn't know could be pushed. And the real point is, and particularly what you brought up, the pattern begins to emerge where I blame you for pushing a button. But what I have to understand if I want the pattern to end is that you didn't create the button. It came forward through time with me in an unknown body of consciousness that carries these badges, these buttons, as the result of incomplete experiences that were met with incomplete, incomplete understanding. So in the end, Tim, the pattern ends when we can learn as a partner to say to our partner, not outwardly, inwardly, you know what? Uh, thanks. I, I didn't know that about myself. I had no idea that I felt like I couldn't possibly, no one should challenge this estimation of myself, that you should uh, challenge my opinion. Who, who walks around thinking that they are everything that God created and no one should challenge it? But in us, 
are those tendencies in a consciousness we're asleep to. Relationships bring up the content so that another kind of light, a new awareness, can begin to help us see it, realize it, and release it. Wonderful. Wonderful. It is, it's, and it's not you that's irritating me. It's our interaction that's showing me that I have an irritable little person inside of me. Yes, <laughs> to quote yes. you from a previous talk. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's exactly right. And look how nice this is. I'll show you. Have, have you ever been able to fix someone, Tim? Not you yet. I'm, I'm still working on it, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You and I and everyone listening to us knows that even if we can get someone to to jump through a hoop, that it isn't two or three times before they jump through the hoop, before they turn and snarl, and the resentment born of believing that they had to make us content turns out to be a contempt that they feel for us because of their own weakness in jumping through the hoop. So we can't fix other people. And yet, I'm hoping everybody's following. You and I know that we've had moments where there were limitations in us that someone may have even called out that we resisted. But where at last, because by the grace of the divine, by the grace of an act of love, the conditions required to reveal that level of unconsciousness keep coming back and coming back and coming back until one day you sit there and you go, holy cow, I never, I never understood it. The, the, I, I never understood. I, I resented you because you didn't approve of me. Instead of seeing the problem lay with the idea that I had to be approved by you to be worthy. It's a lie. But I didn't see it as a lie, and so the blame went forward in a pattern where I either pushed or pulled and tried to get you to be someone who would see me as I want to be seen. Why? To confirm an image I have of myself that no matter how many people confirm it can never be made real. So in that moment, the healing takes place because the limitation has been revealed as an aspect of a level of consciousness I didn't know I was identified with. And in that revelation is the invitation for me to see the truth that sets me free. And it does. And funny enough, when I begin to see the problem in my relationship isn't the limitation I blame on you, but rather something I've yet to realize in myself, then I stop pushing to change you. And you get a chance to see where the limitation is. I call it the jujitsu of love. Because when I stop trying to throw you and just get out of the way, then you have no one to fight with. Because you can't blame me for your pain when I stop arguing then you get to see what's living in you that's the limitation in our relationship. And when you have any two people realizing that the task of love and of that relationship is for each person through that relationship to become realized through it, 
to see where a limitation is keeping the perfection of love from manifesting. And the more we get out of the way, the more we realize there's an innate love that brought us together for the purpose of perfecting our relationship with it through our relationships. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about your book is that you're talking about some of the practicality and you're also talking about, as as you refer to it, love, the higher kind of love that matters yes. most yes. and how it, it is not and cannot be determined by what others do or don't do toward us. And you yes. say, this should be evident after all. After all, what kind of love is it that gives itself only to those who give give it back when and as expected. Besides, if there's one thing we should all know by now, it's this. It's never been in our power to make others love us as we would have them do. And so I, I really enjoy how you keep calling us to the idea that we don't have to do all of this work. We, the work will be done for us by that higher kind of love when we just do our piece you know, yes. to, you, 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 you talk at times about in the book about creating the space where when I'm called to the negative reaction, I recognize it and I hold back in that, you know, jujitsu of love you're just talking about. And I leave a space where my partner can see their pain rather than me keeping trying to show them how they're creating my pain, uh, yes. which, of course, blinds them, etc. One of the things I want to ask is because you've got this wonderful multi-layers that you're talking about in the book. Most of us come into these books like this and spiritual teachings with all kinds of old baggage. And one of the questions that, that suggested here in your literature is, how do we let go of any old bitterness that's built up between us and our partner, our family, our friend? I'd love to have you address that for some of us because I know people are saying yeah there's just too much baggage I, I I can't fix this there's we have to have new knowledge Tim before we can have a new mind Christ spoke of metanoia this idea that we need new ears to be able to hear eyes to see because in this instance And you've said it so well, and it's a delight to hear that you're mining that out of the book. In in Scripture, East and West, but mostly Western, actually I think there's six or seven different kinds of love pointed out, but the the most uh, obvious uh, are this, this kind of eros love, this very physical and aphilic love, uh, uh, which is like a brotherly love. Most of our relationships are based in that. And then there's the love that Christ and Buddha and every great prophet and saint on this planet talks about, irregardless of the branding of that through religiosity. And that is agape. That is this understanding that all of us, to some degree, know exists. And we know it exists through what I call divine dissatisfaction. If everything and anything in this world was the answer to making me feel whole, happy, and complete, continual, constant basis, then by now I would know it. I would have it 
where I've had it and it didn't do it. That even means with my wife, whom I love dearly, my parents, God bless their souls, those people in my life that I love. I understand that the people in my life that I love are placeholders. They are manifestations of love that exist for the sole purpose, as I do for they, of helping me remember that there is another kind of love that I am called to know, to be, and to live in and from that doesn't fight, that doesn't hate, that isn't afraid, that never separates, and that all of the relationships are moments in which if we see it, by the very fact of seeing our impatience, our negative attitudes, that by the imperfection that is revealed to us in ourselves, about ourselves in that moment, it couldn't be revealed unless there was a perfect light there showing it to us. How else would I know I missed the mark if there wasn't something making it evident to me, not judging me, as we love to do to ourselves, because that seems to prove that we know what love is. No one who judges himself or herself knows the love I'm speaking of. Love doesn't judge. He maketh the sun to shine on good and evil alike about this divine love. So, yes, it's a stretch. And people are sometimes very bothered when they hear me speak of these things or write. Because in our hearts, we all know we're missing the mark. We're so caught up with trying to find ourselves, prove ourselves, make of ourselves something, get others to validate what can never be validated, that our lives are just running around and running out of steam, running out of the daily bread, because we're, we, we, we've, we've not had the, the new knowledge, the true understanding that's everywhere around us that is trying to say to us, Guy, look, man, and now I'm sorry for the long answer, why am I bitter? Why did that person come up in my mind again? My parents who abused me. That woman who betrayed me when I was 27. Who I gave everything to and, and turned on me like that. And here's the answer to the question that summarizes everything I'm saying. And everybody, you might want to write it down because it's one of the most important things that I teach, at least in my language. As goes my attention so comes my experience. As goes my attention, so comes my experience. It's a multi-layered principle, but we've covered it in the beginning. When I give my attention to Tata, the new little fawn, I feel all the little fawn qualities. I feel a tenderness, a gentleness, because my attention links to the consciousness of that creature. And in some respect, by the way, the consciousness of that creature links to my own. That's the, that's the hope for animals on this planet, of being raised gradually, if humanity could only begin to understand that responsibility. But I feel Tata. I feel that little, timid, beautiful creature. Now, my attention links me to that consciousness. Why, Tim? When my mind brings up that person who hurt me, why do I give my attention to that pain? 
Would I deliberately attend to something for which giving my attention to it gives me the experience of the recreation of that conflict? I would never do it consciously, which means that my attention is being used by a level of consciousness for the continuity of itself and not for the continuity of what it says it's doing because when it thinks about people that hurt it and that want that it wants to protect itself from or do something so it can escape them it's not escaping the people or the condition it's giving its attention to the condition that's creating its experience and so it's actually reliving unconsciously the very thing it says it doesn't want and that's why bitterness and hatred and anger doesn't go away, because we've yet to awaken to realize there is a part of our consciousness that loves to reincarnate those things, which is why we don't learn from the past, which is why history repeats itself, because there's an unconscious nature believing it knows the purpose of the moment, when instead that consciousness is perpetuating the very moment it says it doesn't want. Sorry for all of that, but I had to get the whole thing out. Well, no apologies necessary. I'm just sitting here thinking, boy, am I glad this is recorded so I can go back and listen and take more notes. I, lo- I have uh, so many things going on in my head. I, I, I love the idea you talk about how it's, these different things are in scale. And um, when you said my attention when it goes to an old bitterness – is being used by a level of my consciousness, not yes. my true self, but by a level of my consciousness, simply to ensure its continuity. Yes. Because why else? Why else would I keep going back to the pain? I say I hate the pain, but exactly. my, my my mind keeps going back to it, and so it's not my volitional mind clearly, because what I would choose in this moment is to focus on Tata or some other loving interaction. No, 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 no. Listen to me. What I would choose to do is be aware of the fact that something in me, by resisting my past, is recreating it. Resistance is a secret form of attraction. Resistance is a secret form of being bound to the thing I'm resisting so that I don't need to think of Tata when I'm unhappy. That's resistance. What I need to do is agree to be aware of that level of consciousness that wants to recreate itself. Why? Because a level of awareness that can see that consciousness is already above and beyond that consciousness. It is showing me something concealed that in its revelation is released because no one would consciously hurt himself or herself under any circumstances. Right. So what you're saying is if I try to get out of my negative state by focusing on a positive thing, it's just the same part of my mind trying to escape something. Yes, absolutely. And the only only liberty comes from realizing that what drew my attention to something that generates pain is a level of consciousness yes. that's just trying because to keep rolling. Yes, yes. Because if I'm aware of it, suddenly, for the first time, the weed has been thrust from the chaff. 
I have come out from amongst them. A new level of self, a new identity, if you want the, 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 uh, the beginning of conscience, the first advent of, of Christ consciousness appears. That light, that awareness knows these things are not only who, are not who I am, but that they exist for the purpose of this revelation. Did you ever think about that passage, which makes no sense to most people? Very, very uh, important in our relationships with others. To love thine enemy? What in God's name does that mean? How can I love my enemy? Ah, the moment in which the revelation brings up this anger, this resentment, this fear in me, is the same as the moment I'm invited, if I'll be present to it, to see that level of consciousness. So he prepares a, a feast in the presence of my enemies. My enemies have no authority unless I don't want to have an enemy. <laughs> Can you follow that? Yes, I think I do. I, I, I'm put to mind of... Um... Dale Ellen Hoffman, who talks about the ancient Aramaic and says one of the definitions for enemy from the ancient Aramaic is anyone or anything in the presence of whom I hold my breath. So yeah. when I resist an event, that's the creation of this tension. And the revelation that's in that moment that I'm rejecting that you're talking about, that's the gift. That's the banquet. Yes. And, and I, I don't, I don't want to put words in the mouth of this fellow, but I love that, that, that the Aramaic, because what is that really saying? When I hold my breath, what is the Ruach Adonai, the breath of the spirit? So here I am. And in the presence of this thing, I hold my breath. I'm cut off from spirit. And not only am I cut off from spirit, but to the point of everything we're saying, in that moment, because I'm caught up in this loop of a nature that summarily resists anything that challenges the image it has of itself, then that same nature says, here, guy, I will be your guide. Here's what to do. Protect yourself. Defend yourself. Go make a billion dollars. Do this, do that, and you will be free. That's exactly the same thing as a false god. That is a false guide appearing as light, but that's actually born of the darkness that I don't know I'm in, which is why I don't know that guide to be false and dark. I hope I'm not getting too carried away here, Tim, too deep. Well, it, it, it reminds me of how you say so clearly in so many other talks that when I listen to fear... Fear is only going to tell me what to do so that fear can run my life another day, another week, another That's month. It. That's it. And That's it also it. puts me in mind of, you know, you must have been doing some Krishnamurti reading over the years because Krishnamurti has so many people say, okay, so now I see this, now what? And he says, well, if you see it clearly to its source, it loses its power over you. You don't have to decide what to do next. If you see actuality in the moment, it acts on you. And you act from that. There's a flow. You don't have to ask and think about what to do. You just do. That's it. That, that is. Uh, that is whatever. That. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Look, um, if you pick up a hot skillet, 
do you need instructions to put it down? And to save your voice for a minute, I really like what you said in one of your talks about how I don't have to keep reminding myself consciously day in and day out after I've burned myself on the skillet, stay away from the hot skillet, stay because it's there. Right. I don't have to keep thinking about it. Exactly. And it's the same thing, Tim, when it comes to relationships. I say when I'm negative with my partner, that they produced this pain in me. They did not produce this pain in me. They revealed there is a pain in me that I have yet to be able to understand and heal. And when I understand those moments, then instead of turning and, you, and letting my pain push back, I'm present to this unhealed part that has been concealed. And the work is done by the revelation, the light of that awareness. Because who would live consciously carrying around something that creates conflict for them? When I do that properly, then I begin to enter into a different kind of relationship where you know what? Have you ever been upset with your partner where you were blaming your partner for your pain, but you could see, at least in retrospect? Before I get upset with anybody, I'm in pain. Before I get upset with anybody, there is a pain in me. I don't understand that that pain in me was there before I found someone to blame for it. My partner has the same circumstance. And you get to a place where both people are in pain and neither one knows their partner is suffering because all that nature is concerned with is its suffering and what has to be done to get rid of it. Well, when you understand the pain belongs to a level of consciousness that is only interested in keeping it alive through this seemingly divided relationship where people are different we're not different we all want the same thing we want to be whole happy loving human beings but that don't understand that isn't something we create it's something we're being given and shown moment to moment through our relationships Yeah, you're right back to the idea of the mirror that was in the quote I was reading from the beginning. And on, on, on page 100, you say it so simply, no one, no event is the sole cause of what we see as disturbing us any more than a mirror is responsible for showing us something in it that we would rather not see. Exactly. You know, you walk into a room, there's five people there, and... You, you can feel the negativity. They're, they've been fighting. They, don't even, they could be dead silent. You would know they've been fighting. Why? Because suddenly you can feel the negativity in you. But if you don't know that the negativity is just a kind of mirror effect, a, resonate, <clears throat> a resonation of certain vibration, then that nature will say, Boy, the, boy, are these people negative. <laughs> and suddenly you're negative. Instead, you could walk in and feel the negativity and realize I need to be very awake now 
because I know something in me can feel what's going on, and I need to be the witness of it, not its unconscious instrument. Challenge. There's a challenge. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and part so of me was... See, Tim, Tim, you hinted at it. It's not up to me to fix. Right. Right. It's up to me to see the insanity. You know, That's I, it. I mean, we, we, we have this culture where uh, we're programmed to think you made me angry, you hurt my feelings, etc. And yet we're not aware of how well we've been programmed. Now, exactly. at one and the same moment that I could see how ridiculous it is for somebody to get mad and smash a mirror because they don't like what it's reflecting to them. I think nothing yes. of blaming my partner for the anger I feel. And yet, yes. as you just laid out, it's the same thing. Yes. So I can't, I can't see my own insanity unless I slow down and, and begin this process of creating that space, as you talk about in the book, to, to resist the moment where some part of me tells me to do a reaction or a negativity or a blaming and to just so, so what's one of the best ways to start with that? How do I, how do I in, from your experience, how do I begin to build that strength of the part of me that can take a breath and hold, hold back that negative reaction? Any, any tricks you have, any tips for us in that regard? Absolutely. But let's be clear. We're not holding back the relationship. We're just not expressing it. That's different. We're not denying it and we're not expressing it, we're witnessing it. An example, a couple, a partnership of some kind, and one of the partners has had a tough day, come home, and the other partner sees the partner who's had a bad day come in, and because they know the look on that person's face, they immediately <clears throat> say something like, do you have a tough day? to which the partner then begins to say all the things that went wrong with the day. Now, the more the one partner starts to unload, the more the other partner starts to wish they never asked, because now they're getting negative too. So here comes the stop, drop, and endure exercise. Stop, drop, and endure. We've been studying these ideas, let's say that one of the partners and they realize they can feel the momentum of this negativity starting to ramp up, and they want to retort. They want to say something. You're always negative. When are you going to have a good day? Blah, blah, blah. Some passive-aggressive statement. But we know that when pain answers pain, the response will be more pain. So we're going to become – you ready for a beautiful word? Do you know the original meaning of the word patience, Tim? Uh, something to uh, suffer myself. Yes, to suffer myself. And 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 can you help us? Because when I've heard this in your talks before and tried to share it with people, they their interpretation is I'm telling them they need to just suffer and accept suffering. And the the archaic meaning of that has more to do with uh, what you just said: um, enduring myself, allowing. Yes. Um, Yes, it is a way of understanding that I have, to date, been someone who, in this circumstance, always shoot first and ask questions later. 
I'm going to deliberately, as best I'm able to do, in part because I understand that nothing that's a part of a pattern can bring the pattern to an end. Nothing that is a part of a pattern can bring the pattern to an end. But if there is something in me that knows that as true, that's already outside of the pattern. Now I must instrument, I must act the knowledge of not being part of the continuation of the pattern. But that doesn't mean that that pattern and that nature isn't in me. So I am going to be patient. I am going to stop in the midst of its appearance and drop all the habitual vocalization, mentation, emotional response, and become the witness of it so that I'm going to endure the manifestation of my own lower consciousness. I'm literally going to agree to die to it and for it. This is a crucifixion. I'm not going to identify with it. I'm going to let it come up, and I'm going to watch it die. And it will, because that unconsciousness, that level of sleep, is mechanical. It only exists as long as we are resisting a circumstance. And the minute that we agree to be the observer of this resistance instead of its instrument, it only has so far to go. So I stop, I drop all the thought, the feeling, being the witness of it, and I endure that nature until I see it fade from sight. And if I will do that, I will see the authority that nature has had over me. I will understand the great myths like Rumpelstiltskin and why when she finally knew the name of the creature, she gained authority over it. The old meaning of gaining the name, meaning you knew the phonetics, you knew the energy source, so that she was above the, the little evil thing instead of participating at its level of trying to make peace with it. This is what we have to work at, Tim, and it all can be done. We're created to succeed at understanding this relationship. Wonderful. It, it reminds me of a beautiful story you have of a man who was raised, and and he woke up and realized, you know, I, I'm kind of a slave here, but the master was, you know, not so bad. And But over time, he decided to research freedom. Eventually, he realized that you can learn all that you want about freedom, and that you'd never get free. Right. And then finally... You know, the punchline of, of the story was he went to the master and said, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. And the master said, you have to. And he finally said, you know, the master said, I'm the law. And 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 the hero in your story finally said, I am the new law. Yes. And, and he becomes to, the new law by by understanding the only authority the master has over him is his mistaken belief in the authority of the master. Exactly. When we become and the new law, we are made new. That's what you're alluding and, to. Right, and what you talk about in all of these stories is you're not talking about an external master. All of these stories are the internal, that yes. I have been a slave to a part of myself, a level of consciousness within me that's going to continue its part in the pattern just so that it continues, but yes. that nothing in that pattern... No part of a pattern can bring an end to it. So I have to become aware of a 
as you talk about so well in the book, a higher level of love, this higher order in scale of force can awaken me to potentials within me that I've been asleep to. Yes. And the beauty of it is it's already there, Tim. It is the very basis of our being. It's just that we have, to use words, kind of fallen into this uh, level of consciousness where uh, a false light, an imagined light, has replaced the real one. Every time we save ourselves, fix ourselves by trying to become what someone else or what we think the world tells us we have to become, without knowing it, we are following a false guide. And that false guide lives to create false relationships so that in the pain that ensues, it can strengthen its authority. We can change that by understanding what it means to want to see the truth of the moment more than we want to prove that we already know it by getting negative. Wonderful. Wonderful. I just looked at the clock and realized we've you've been very generous and given us a full hour of your time, and we want to be uh, conscious of your uh, energy expenditure because you're promoting this in many places. Um, as we wrap up, um, a couple of things. One is last comments or statements you'd like to make and perhaps tell us a little bit about your Life of Learning Foundation and what might be coming up there. Do you have to turn the pines soon? What's happening? <clears throat> yes, thank you, Tim. Um, first, listen, if anybody's interested, uh, my foundation, Life of Learning Foundation, has created a, a very special offer. And if you go to relationshipmagicbook.com, one word, relationshipmagicbook.com, and order the book through that site, not only will you get the best price, but you will get an audio book, that, the audio version of the book that I read. You'll also get a free three-hour webinar based on relationship magic and a 60-minute MP3 download. So you get three really great gifts when you go to relationshipmagicbook.com. Now, if you don't want to order, for whatever reason, through that link, you want to go someplace else, come back to that link and merely provide the, excuse me, the order information, uh, the order number, whatever it is, and we'll still give you the gifts. So relationshipmagicbook.com. <laughs> is that right, Tim? That's yes, you okay. got it right. Relationshipmagicbook.com. Now, as Tim said, I live and teach in southern Oregon. Uh, we're just about 60 miles north of the California border, and my foundation sits on... 15 acres of old-growth sugar pine. It is a beautiful place, and uh, a couple times a year we hold gatherings. The next one is coming up, the solstice, summer solstice. We call it the Talks in the Pines. And if you go to uh, guyfinley.org, www.guyfinley.org, G-U-I-F-I-N-L-E-Y, you can uh, snoop around the site and learn about this upcoming event where men and women from all over the world come in and we have a very intensive workshop and we're going to have a very, very good uh, topic and uh, work-related material for this coming Talks in the Pines. It's called Deepen Your Relationship with the Divine. So if you're interested, 
do that. And if not, I speak three times, four times a week here at the foundation uh, over the weekend. Check the schedule, $3 donation at the door. No one's ever turned away, nothing to join. And lastly, if I may, uh, I have a wisdom school, an online wisdom school. You can learn about it right through the foundation, where men and women, again, from all over the world, as Tim has been alluding to, listen to, watch a video live-streamed, and once a week it's discussed online in a forum. And once a month I host that forum, but the rest of the time it's hosted by longtime students, and it's invaluable. So uh, that and... So we hope that you enjoyed that interview with Guy Finley. Dr. Tim's off this week. Hold the space for him. And... Uh, uh, we invite you to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. Today is Monday, August 21st, 2023. Our call-in number is 563-999-3581. Press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and questions. Because that makes this your show. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. Honored, delighted that you're here. And we get to move forward and carry on with the conversation. We've been discussing the idea of codependence to interdependence recently and the power person dynamic. And actually what I've done the last couple of shows, I've heard from a few people saying, wow, this is really impactful. Well, the material that we've been talking about on the power person, uh, we actually, in our last two codependence to interdependence communication practicum intensives online on Zoom, we developed a new power person worksheet for hmm, 25 years. It was a single page power person worksheet, which is still on the website. And in doing these two intensives back-to-back online led to creating what has become now a 14-page power person worksheet. And so that's what I've been talking about with the pseudo-solutions and the, the goals, the things that people are looking to accomplish and such. So that's kind of what I'm drawing on for that. And if it's impacting you and if you're ready to do the next level of work, of course, this is just scratching the surface of what happens in that particular intensive, and we do have it available as a uh, standalone self-study process that includes a uh, pre and post personal code evaluation. And the personal code evaluation is a uh, an evaluation that we put together to help people to see where their blocks are. You know, when we live in blockage of truth, when, when our mind tells us a lie and we call the lie truth, then the mind has no room, has no space for truth. So we call that living in blockage of truth. And the minute that you tell yourself, you know, the most common, the first lie that virtually everybody learns to tell is, you made me. So when you step into the game of blame, you now know that you're in blockage of truth. So it's pretty much something that governs the whole world. And climbing out of that hole is a is quite an interesting task. It really does take some significant work. And so that intensive is designed to assist people in doing that work. And 
as I say, it is available. The MMPI is the basis of the personal code evaluation, and that's the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. It's considered to be the gold standard of psychological testing. And we've adapted it for use to give people feedback. So it's a shortened version that gives people feedback on exactly where the blocks are in their minds. It basically breaks one's personal code. And your personal code is the personal set of rules that your mind forces you to comply with in living your life. For instance, how many have ever said, well, I'm never going to do that again? And then the next time the stress was up and the chips are down, you did exactly that again. That's because your personal code requires it of you. And until you change your personal code, that behavior doesn't change. And so the core of the codependence to interdependence communication is really about changing the personal code. So you get a, uh, as part of that self-study intensive, you get a pre-evaluation. And then there are two videos that you'll receive that will give you step-by-step instructions for how to understand that your feedback and get the assignments that will be most useful to break through. You know, usually each time someone does a personal code, we give them three assignments to do out of the 10 areas that uh, the personal code measures, the 10 scales that are included. And so there are two videos that explain the personal code and what the, what the um, assignments are for each area that there are blockages in. And then there are approximately 90 hours of video work. Two intensives were done on Zoom, were combined. And so all of the teaching, all of the processing, all of the questions and answers, the uh, still point breathing instruction or happening that took place live in the workshop, that's all included within the intensive. So it's a, a pretty uh, deep study, as I say, well, we've covered with all in, in what I think two days now, we've pretty much covered the first uh, five pages of a 14-page power person worksheet which is just one of the tools in that intensive. We, in that intensive, we do, why is this happening to me again? So we cover the forgiveness tool. We do healing through relationships, so we get into the uh, um, commitment tool. We do communication, did you hear what I think I said? And we tap into the difference between projection communication, you made me mad, to responsibility communication. Oh, I'm realizing that what you said brought up anger in me. You know, I mean, the difference of night and day and building the brain cells to really comprehend that difference. And so, as I say, this is just a, a scratch in the surface of one of the tools. And if you're ready to take your work, really ready to go to the next level, the whole course, including the pre and post evaluation and ongoing support with the radio show. So as you're doing it, we're here for you to call in and ask questions. The cost of the whole program is $600. And of course, you can take whatever time period you wish to go through those 90 hours. It's totally and completely focused on a self-study. So that's kind of where we're, where we're coming from and where we're going. And if we look at the last few thoughts, we were talking about, you know, what some of the pseudo-solutions are of the, the non-being mind, you know, people who use all kinds of uh, avoidance mechanisms in order not to have to feel and deal with 
what they um, what they've dissociated from in their own minds. And so, you know, anything from the denial, dissociation, yelling, screaming, you know, uh, avoiding, false pride, leaving, escaping, going numb, becoming self-absorbed, making excuses, unwilling to look within, you know, dish out your daily dose of disapproval in yourself or others, be unfair, unkind, OCD, puff up, rage, threaten. They're all the things, I mean, we've got a li- in the worksheet, there are a list of 75 different um, pseudo-solutions that people tend to use with the idea of, you know, part of the assignment is to look at what of these uh, things did you watch your power person do and what happened for you as you did that? Uh, what of these things have you done? Uh, and and then there's a, a key question in it because what happens is everybody does the behavior of their power person or spends a whole lot of energy and time resisting and struggling against doing those behaviors. However, there's a big difference between when your power person did it and when you do it. And and I'm telling you that there is virtually no one in the world who avoids this trap. However, When the power person does it, the individual who's the object of that, usually the child in the situation, calls it one thing. Oh, they were so abusive when they talked to me like that. And then when they do it, they have a totally different label for it. Oh, yes, when I talked to him like that, I was just trying to be helpful and instructive. And so the mind can live in this game that it isn't replicating the power person dynamic. But, you know, the core truth is that until this power person dynamic is understood and resolved, virtually everyone in the world, and I don't care if you're looking at somebody who's the president of the largest corporation in the world or this country or that country or or this country club or that country club or this successful business person, businesswoman, businessman, I don't care who you're looking at. They're being run by their power person. When the stress is up, you know, there there are basically three behaviors possible until one recognizes and cleans up this power person dynamic in their mind. And as far as I know, until about 25 years ago when I literally downloaded this workshop, it's a dynamic that's been absolutely unknown on planet Earth. Yet it runs every major corporation, every government, every church, every family system, every community. And the three behaviors that the automatic decision system kicks in and insists that you do, again, remember people say, well, I'll never do that again. And they don't until the next time the stress is up and the chips are done because when ultra-stressed, everyone, everyone does what their power person did to them that they hated the most. Or, as I say, spends a great deal of time and energy resisting doing that. Jean and I did this workshop in uh, in Fort Lauderdale back, geez, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago, something like that. And uh, a gentleman who runs a 12-step program had invited us to uh, 
to present to his 12-step group. He had a, an extremely large online community uh, that he had run for several decades, you know, like kind of back from the early days of the Internet. And he'd been in AA for about 30 years in recovery, hadn't touched alcohol in three decades. And when I explained the behaviors, he very vehemently resisted and said, no, that's not true, because as a kid, I was severely beaten by my father just about every day of my childhood. And I have a son, and I have never hit my son. And he kind of came on sort of strong, like, you know, that's not true. And he went from that posture of rigid and, you know, objecting and strong about it to where I think I could have bowled him over with a a feather when I then asked the question, and how much time do you still spend trying to control your fists? It was like, that's like the major project of my life to keep from hitting somebody. So, yes, you had the willpower to resist doing the behavior that your power person did that you hated the most. And it's still running in your mind 30 years after you got sober. So this is something that virtually everyone needs to resolve. One of the ways they avoid dealing with the power person dynamic is they just rename it. They do the behavior, but they rename it. It's something different for them. So the next step in the process of healing through relationships and with the understanding of codependence is to allow yourself to become conscious of each thought disorder that's based on the power person messages you received, or it may be messages that you made up about yourself or others. So the self-message might be, there's something wrong with me, I'm broken. The message that comes from the power person is, you're broken, there's something wrong with you. It might be a thought like with others, oh, other people are incapable of functioning as love. People rip me off. And when I own and forgive as to those errant thoughts, those thought disorders at the root of any pain-based perceptions, the pain-based pictures in my mind over time unwind. Get to unwind all the energetic dynamics behind it and remove that all that pain from my life. But you don't do that if you don't ever... Uh, allow yourself to become conscious of and forgive us too those thought disorders and oftentimes people tell themselves stories about the power person to convince themselves that the message received from the power person was true so you know if if someone got the message from the power person that they were broken then the story they might tell themselves about their power person is, well, my mom, my dad was so smart. They must have been right about me. Or my power person is so powerful. They're better than me. So that might be the kind of story that somebody tells themselves 
about the power person themselves. And as you become aware of those stories, you recognize that they're unconscious, then allowing them to come to conscious awareness is what initiates the cleanup process. And of course, there's also telling oneself the stories about oneself to convince oneself that the power person message I either received or I made up was true. So, you know, you'll hear people, I mean, I, I can't fathom. When I, when I started to become conscious of language, regulatory speech, can't tell you how often I've heard people say, I'm so stupid, or I deserve to suffer. I am really a bad person. I deserve whatever I get. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing. And it's interesting because oftentimes, especially with that stupid message, I'll say to somebody, you're not, and they'll go, I'm not what? And the fact that the words, I'm stupid, came out of their mouths was totally and completely unconscious. They did had no idea that they, they affirmed that idea about themselves. So it becomes really key and really important to start to dismantle those dynamics. When one is under the spell of the power person dynamic, they tend to ex insist that their perceptual construct about themselves or about their children or about their parents, whoever it is they have conflict with, they, they insist that their perception must be true. It, it's fact about what's happening out there rather than a reflection of what's happening inside and being projected. So remember that when one goes into denial and, and the, the easing into denial, it's, it's one of the first things that virtually every one of us learned as kids. And that was to blame someone else. You know, you've heard me say it before, by the age of four, virtually every person on planet Earth is, and, and it has become a card-carrying member of the one world religion, universal religion of blame. It's everybody else's fault. So when I step into an alternative universe, i.e., I honor the truth and really look at the facts, you know, is my mind's construct provable? Is the conclusion I've generated with my mind really true? And then start to ask yourself, what in the actuality of the situation, if I allow it in, would support me in healing the underlying thought disorders? So when I start to tell myself the truth, the person who I said never supported me, all of a sudden, I realize that's a construct in my mind, and I really tap into the facts, and my goodness, they've been there to support me totally. So start to look at painful relationships, relationships you call painful in your life or disturbing, upsetting, or what have you, and ask yourself, what has that shown you repeatedly? So it might be things like,
well, this is an adversarial relationship. I need to escape. And then it can be helpful to start to look at alternative possible realities. Like, I'm experiencing a very old pain pattern here. Perhaps this is my opportunity to forgive my part in this. So you start retraining the mind to move in different directions rather than living out of that codependent dynamic. And of course, when one does that, it's a mega life changer. And whenever I do a behavior, that behavior is always a form of communication. You know, there's a component in the intensive that's called communication. Did you hear what I think I said? And so the, the next invitation in this worksheet, page 7 out of 14 pages now, is recognizing that all behavior is a form of communication. And what is it that I'm trying to communicate with the behaviors that I've been using, that long list that I shared the other day? So the question you might ask yourself might be something like, you know, one of the, the pseudo-solutions that, uh, that we offered in that list was using the voice. So an example might be, so if I use the voice, what's the underlying message in the tone that I use? And the hint to what that message is might be, what message did I get from my power person when they did that behavior? So my power, if I use the voice on people, I use the breath on people, you know, what's really going on when I go, brother? what's the underlying message? And what's the goal that I have for that behavior? So my goal in using a particular behavior might be to get them to shut up so that I don't have to deal with my hurt. You know, if what their words are, are conveying are resonating hurt for me, if I can get them to shut up, I don't have to deal with my hurt. And then, you know, the hurt might be about not being safe. And so well, I'm, the underlying motivation behind using something like an abusive voice tone can be, be, I want to feel safe. So you can uh, start doing, you know, a, a series of just writing statements that start out with, my goal in using this behavior was to you know, get that person to shut up so that I wouldn't have to deal with my hurt and I can feel safe. So just that simple statement to start to look at what the underlying motivation is with particular behaviors, especially behaviors that you find people resisting when you do them. So just doing a series of, of statements, you know, journaling. My goal in using that particular behavior, you know, and pick any behavior that people don't like you doing, or maybe you don't like yourself when you do it. 
what was the goal and what were you trying to achieve for yourself can be really powerful. And then starting to look at the emotions that surface in you. You know, way back in the original steps of the uh, of the worksheet, we named a power person. This is, you know, designed ultimately to be used on a single situation with an individual, much like the reality management worksheets designed to work with a particular object of attention. So to really own and look at the emotions that surface. and what played out with this power person dynamic with me and are those emotions similar to this event? So if I, I'm doing a worksheet on something that happened to me today and I'm looking back to see how that played out in interaction with my original power person and as you allow yourself to become conscious, this is part of the way that you resolve, aside from the forgiveness process, is part of the way that you resolve that power person dynamic so that you're not run by it. As I say, the, the world is run by it until one understanding starts to work through it. Of course, identifying, you know, when you start looking at those emotions, identifying the emotion and then really sitting with and contemplating what's the thought behind that emotion, allowing yourself to become fully conscious of it and be aware of where you're feeling it in your physiology. Uh, this is all part of becoming, you've heard us say, the, become the thinker apart from the thought, the feeler apart from the feeling, the actor apart from the actions. And that can be very powerful in being able to observe what your mind is doing and not be lost in what your mind is doing. Oftentimes people get stuck because of unresolved power person dynamics in control, in avoidance, distraction, deflection, blame. So work to identify any fear or hostility-based messages that you've given to others or self in order to achieve that goal. Of and identifying whether it's control or avoidance, distraction, deflection. And that might look like I force or threaten people into being silent. Don't make me look at that. I'll leave if you ever make me look at that or deal with that. Dynamics, when you start looking at them, are major life changers when you start undoing them. And oftentimes, you know, the very message that we just spoke about, those fear and hostility-based messages that, have been, that you give to others, are nothing but a replicate. Again, it's behavior based in the power person dynamic. So looking at a time when your power person conveyed those messages to you and how it felt for you, what came up in you in the way of feelings can be another big key to resolving these dynamics. 
looking at making a list of what you perceived your power person's needs to be. And remember that the power person is a person who had more power over your life at some point than you did, was not functioning as love. The kicker that puts them into, that puts that power person dynamic into your mind, installs it into your mind is, as those two things are happening, you perceive the situation as survival. And once you make a list of what you perceived your power person's needs to be, then make a corresponding list of what did my power person do to get those needs met? And were their behaviors just and fair? If they were not just and fair, notice that under stress, you're probably not just and fair. Because again, under stress, virtually everyone does whatever their power person did to them that they hated the most. And so just correlating that information can be very powerful in getting into deeper and deeper layers of your own unconscious mind. As you make a list of your power person's needs, have you ever exhibited similar needs? Then once again, make a list. And as you start to look at all these, what seem to be separate pieces of information, deeper and deeper clarity come to how it is that we create out of this power person dynamic. And that's where its resolution begins. And Ms. Jeannie, I see we're past the halfway mark. So just checking in, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? It is all quiet on this end. We've got several people out there. Oh, a hand just went up, and I believe it's Miss Susan, 610. Awesome. You're on Say the hello. Air. Hey there, young lady. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. So, Mike, Michael, quick question to start. OCD is part of yes. the – can you explain that little mechanism, how that works? Well, my take would be that it's a thought disorder. And if one holds messages from a power person that are something like, I'm incompetent or I'm always wrong or I always make mistakes, then the misgivings about one's own behavior become the root of OCD. I have to do it over and over. I have to get the approval of my power person. I have oh, to make I sure I do it right. It, it's working out of those thought disorders. And when the thought disorders go away, then the OCD will tend to go away as well. Whoa. And it becomes OCB, obsessive compulsive blessing. Each time the mind, you know, the <laughs> old track is still there and it comes up, but it comes yeah. up with a smile and, and healing rather than pain and trauma. Mm. Okay, good. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
I'm thinking about my grandson who's about to go to college, grandson Charlie. Right. And he he has relationship ODD, OCD with his father. He and his father were inseparably close all through his childhood. It was the sweetest relationship. And yet suddenly he began, he started with a professor at school. Right. Suddenly started obsessing about this professor that he thought he looked at him funny and he doesn't like him. And he passed him in the hall but turned away. And what does that mean? And then he got over that and he said to me, what was that? I don't have any of those feelings anymore. But he transferred the whole truckload to his own father. So you can imagine how hard yeah. things have been in the house. Jonathan gets exhausted, my son, and says, you're trying to get me to, your monster is talking now. Uh, this is your OCD talking. This isn't healthy. I'm not going to try to reassure you because it will never end if I say exactly what you want, you'll want even more or a tweak, I've got to go to bed. And Jonathan comes home tired from his long day. Right, sure. So it's been very hard, but it's reached the point where Charlie's about to go to college. He's going to drive eight hours. And his dad said, if you want, I'll drive with you and we can share the driving. No, I can't do it because we'll get in. We'll get our OCD on you all the way down there. I can't do that. So Jonathan's parents are flying down there to help him move in, but he doesn't want them to go to any of his orientation events, the lunch they're having for parents and kids. He doesn't want them there. It's just been incredibly destructive and painful, and Charlie can't wait to get out of the house, and he thinks, once I'm out, I'll be fine. And I say to him, yes, you will. This will never happen again. <laughs> oh, let's hope so. Anyway, so. Yeah. But I wonder what well, I remember, the world was. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I remember those things happening. You know, you process them on the show with us, with this teacher at school. And I think yeah. you did several interactions with him to help him to work through that. Yeah. And so. Do you recall what it is specifically that was effective in getting him to disconnect that dynamic from his teacher? Do you have any recollection or idea? Yeah, and he's been working with a wonderful therapist. And he he will tell me when he flips into his healthy-centered mode, he'll say, well, this is why I'm doing this and this is what I'm doing, and I don't need to do it. I know it's a thought disorder, and I do this and do that. But you talked about the word spell. He gets under a spell. And I know exactly what you mean about that uh, myself. So I I guess I, I don't know. How would you know? There must have been some injury there, some trauma for him. Even though he was so close to his father and his father was was not abusive. He was loving and patient and um, did stuff with him. And I, So I don't know where it came from. And maybe I'll never but know. If you can, but, yeah. Yeah. but if you can pinpoint the work you did with him that helped him to get out of the dynamic with teacher mm-hmm. and 
perhaps, you know, especially with him asking the question about what's going on with me, why am I doing this? If you can pinpoint that, then that might be the basis for the explanation of what he's doing, why he's doing it, and how he can step out of it with his dad. Mm-hmm. And he's probably got, you know, some big unresolved goals with dad. For sure. You know, I yeah. want dad's approval. I want dad, you know, who knows what the dynamic is. Yeah, it seems amazing but, to me that this could happen to a kid who hasn't gone to, through any obvious trauma. Uh, it's been the opposite, but the only thing I can think right. of is something he said about his birth. When he was born, he didn't breathe, and they flipped him and flipped him and did stuff, and finally he started breathing, but they had to put him on a breathing monitor for a while. They really, he, he would turn blue, and you right. thought, even that might have something to do with this. How would anybody know? And I'm trying to figure it out, and I know that's pseudo-solution and so forth. But I can so sympathize with Charlie when he says, I've got to know this. And he wants to talk to me to soothe him in the, in the unhealthy way, too. And he'll even say, this is my OCD. I'm talking my OCD. And I'll say, so let's not do it. Let's refocus. Go somewhere else. And sometimes that'll work, or sometimes it doesn't. What if? He says, what? What if in the middle of that OCD voice that he recognizes so well, he shifted into identifying the goal that's driving him and started to work on canceling the goals that drive that process? Because he's not Mm -hmm. doing an OCD behavior without a goal behind it. Yeah. And the fact that he recognizes it, perhaps just the invitation to start looking at, well, what's the goal, Charlie, that's driving you right now? What is it you're trying to accomplish? And basically that last couple of steps that we just talked about, what is it you're trying Mm -hmm. to accomplish here? And as he looks at the, uh, the components of that, Well, he'll that may be his like, release. I want, I want my dad to, to do this or do that or show me this or show me that or prove to me that he loves me or do this or that. But those, he recognizes that. So if you invite and, him to cancel those goals, to, to recognize that they're yeah. goals that he's in charge yeah. of and that when yeah. he realizes that those goals put him into his unhealthy self, mm-hmm. then he's in full control because he can cancel those goals. Yeah. That's the place to go. And I have only half a day left with him. We'll go for a walk maybe this afternoon. Maybe not, you know. But anyway, that's great. And we may talk on the phone. And I hope it's... You'll have lots of phone conversations with him, I'm sure. Yeah. You're his confidant. So. (laughs) So the business of the spell... Um. My experience. Say it again. The business of the the spell, the power person spell. Oh, right. I was I was in AA for six years for relationship addiction, and I have been sober ever since until recently. And I'm telling you, it was as if I am sick, just sick. 
trying to make up stories to make whatever I want come through, true, doing work she's doing, work she's doing, work she's doing, journal writing, mind shift. It just held on to me like this starving beast that was had peace in my flesh. And suddenly... And it sounds like you've gone to the next depth of what you need to clean up. And and very likely, you know, when you asked earlier about um, your grandson, mm. he may be, and at the root of it, may be a generational pattern. Yeah. That, that is really so isn't true. even yours or his. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talk, when I we, say, Charlie, you... Go ahead. You're going to say something. Oh, just that when we, when a, a generational dynamic comes up, and then we make it our own and own it, mm-hmm. then it tends to run us, as opposed to going, "Hmm, this really isn't mine." And gee, I think back to the stories I heard about two, two, two different family members, and I'm I'm ready to be done with this. I'm ready to forgive this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, the one thing we've been able to find some connection with and I think some relief for him is that I can say, when you want your dad to do something, whatever it is, and you want it and you want it and you want it and you think your way through it, but you want it, I do the same thing. And it's a terrible feeling to be that far out of control you know, you, you feel depressed. You feel, um, I don't feel anxious anymore, but I feel um, just beside myself as if I'm suffocating. This is really, sounds so dramatic, but I know he feels the same way. So the only thing I've been able to say it's a to physiological him, response to stress. It is. It's what I hear you describing is a physiological response to a goal that he's mm. addicted to. Yeah. And that's that's like that's going right into that sympathetic dominance mode. And one of the, the challenges with sympathetic dominance, and I think this is a great component in how uh, the medical profession labels people as having m- mental disorders, you know, mental illness, is that once they're in that sympathetic dominance mode, literally blood flow is cut off to the frontal lobes of the brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so reasoning process, reasoning capacity tends to disappear. Yeah. And being kicked into that can be as a result of some real circumstance or situation that brings up fear, or it can be some imagined goal that kicks one into fear and so there's the the downward cycle into the blood flow is cut off to the higher centers of the brain the ability to reason through something is gone fear increases and it becomes a downward cycle when you start canceling the goals when you start recognizing it's stress stress and you breathe and the stress is created by goals then that cycle can be an upward cycle uh, put your hand in the abyssin and increase the capillary action, you know, about a fifth of the blood flow in the body goes to the brain. Mm. And when sympathetic dominance occurs, you know, somebody doesn't need to figure out a calculus problem when there's a tiger chasing them. So sympathetic dominance cuts that blood flow off 
and mm. just reinforces this whole idea that, oh, well, there's a mental illness here. No, there isn't. There's just a lack of blood flow to the brain. Let go of the goals that are creating the stress and, and mm-hmm. open the pathways to the blood flow and full mental capacity comes back. That is a great when thing. It, and I like, I like what you said about the goal business. I've talked to him about this before, but not recently. And so I'm going to try to tackle it again. <laughs> That's great. Good to be Sweet. reminded. Yeah. It's key. I mean, that's, you get to a certain level. Again, go back to Yeshua where he says, sufficient for the day are the evils thereof. And you realize that mm-hmm. word evil in Aramaic means unripened or incomplete, the goals of the day. And if I carry a load, I literally, once I hit a certain level of stress, that's where the power person dynamic kicks in. And now blood flow to the higher centers of the brain are cut off blood flow to all sorts of higher functions, rest even. The blood flow is cut mm-hmm. off from the ability of the mind to even shut down and rest. Yeah. And wow. so as I let go of those goals, I can sink back into a, a softened, open, relaxed state where blood flow is enhanced. And now mm-hmm. those higher centers open and the ability to rest and digest come back online. And well, if you it's know, something Michael, that's been chronic, mm-hmm. that's where the avicen becomes, I think, the assist because it undoes the chronic congestion that comes from this going on in the structure in terms of blood flow long term and supports it opening physiologically. Well, Charlie's not about to take an Avicenza school, but I'm waiting for mine to be returned. I have notified the woman. I said, I need to borrow it back for a while. So I'm going to get a hold of it. Great idea. Yeah. But um, the work I've been doing boils down to a massive, massive, early, pre-verbal shame. And when you mentioned clowning, along with OCD, I become a clown. And it's a very unsafe space to be in because clown is making a fool of myself so that I'll be poorly regarded and punished. And this little dynamic, I just, you know, you talked about an increased vitality. I do feel an increased vitality. So I feel as if I can handle this. What you say about... You know, you need to get to a certain level and then you can deal with it. This is my issue for my life right here. So it took, Mm. what, eight eight years on the radio show to get to it? And Well, if you look how long you you worked on it previously. (laughs) What did you say, Michael? I say if you look how long you worked at it previously. Oh, yeah, to be a clown, you mean? Like, how long has this been going on? Yeah, my whole life, yeah. It's nice to have the chance. So so what's that, four decades now? (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) We wish, right? Yeah, to have the chance to clear this up. And it's extremely exciting. Just, I know you talk about the last two years you've done things that you couldn't have done until now. 
And you can't take a fast course. It's true. This has been incremental and sometimes almost, you say the disciples turned away, say too hard a saying. My mother-in-law used to say, why go into therapy if everything's working all right? And I'm thinking, okay, right. yeah, I understand. So um, anyway. And we don't have to be sick to get better. No. But, you know, no. I've re- I feel as if I've left a lot of carnage behind me. I've I've left a lot of rubble. I've made messes mm. that I can't fix. And those are regrets. And maybe those, I've got to put those aside and just say, well, that's how it is. You know. Well, remember, remember that there's a power in you that Yeshua spoke of. It's step 5B in the worksheet. That in Aramaic was called Ruka de Kudsha. That there's this feminine superpower in you femininely gendered in an Aramaic that has the power and the ability to undo the effects of your errors, the carnage you've left behind. When you turn it over fully, that power has the ability to reach back through all time, forward through all time, and undo the effects of that energy. Well, that's a lovely thought. I I would like to think that's true. But I don't have any control of over people other than myself. Right. Right. And, and one, everybody has to ultimately do their own work. Mhm. Yeah. I was talking to someone the other day, Mr. Businessman and and you know, major issues, and it's like, well, yeah, I've got five bucks in five minutes. Tell me everything you know. I mean, I'm a big businessman, right. so I should be able to be done with this in just a day or two, right? Uh, well, yeah, this has been going on my whole life, but, but uh, I mean, three days maybe? And yeah. that's the that's the culture. I want it instantly. I want it yesterday. And, you know, most say too hard a saying and leave, and they don't want to do the work involved to produce the result. Yeah. Well. Breathing with you. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. (laughs) I'm really fine. That's the other part is I feel great. Even though I go into these places and just say, there it is again. Breathe. Drag out the worksheets. It was only two this morning. Thank Jeannie for her... (laughs) For little little app, yeah. Yes, for sure. And as you progress, it will get easier and easier to take those little suckers by the throat and throw them out. You know, especially <laughs> when you recognize that they're genetic. Especially when you, you know, I mean, remember that melody line in that song? How long has this been going on? Yeah. And most of these dynamics have been going on literally for centuries in our bloodlines. Yeah. Right. And well, the impact is of... monumental. Yeah. Well, it's almost time. I won't keep yakking. They're whole, you know, they're uh, this is like that hydra. There are all kinds of things that are changing because this one thing is changing. Nice work. 
Thanks. Thanks for making the All right, dear heart. Appreciate you. Holding the space for that young man as well. And that, uh, you know, he's got a lifeline with you and that he he keeps the the communication open and you can just keep transferring to him the tools, the understanding, the ideas, and he'll come out the other side healthy. We actually, you know, we watched a film the other night um, about a young man who was a top athlete, literally one of the top two at one point, he was considered to be the top tennis player in the world. And I, I'm, you know, it's someone I really want to get in touch with because he has bought into the fact that when he went out on the on the tennis court for this big match to face the, you know, the toughest the fellow who at that time was the number one competitor in the world. Nobody had the awareness to tell him that he was stepping into a whole new level of vitality. He's getting into a, a an arena with a hundred thousand people that he's touching into a whole new level of vitality, and his mind just breaks loose, and and they call it a breakdown, not realizing that yeah, his mind starts to run with every thought disorder, everything based in fear of loss that he's ever had, yeah. and they tell him he's got a mental oh. illness. Yeah. It's like, sir, you don't have a man. You know, it, 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 it was a documentary that he had done in order to expose the idea of mental illness and kind of help to get rid of the stigma of it. And he shared wow. right toward the end of the film how he um, he really was, you know, just hopeful about, well, when I get rid of this. And, and the doctors, like, almost like put a chain around his neck and drag him. Oh, you're never going to be a mental illness, and that's all. You'll always have it. That's just the way it is. Oh, brother. And it's like, what a crock of crap. That's that's medical malpractice. Absolutely malpractice. And this is the guy, I mean, literally the top tennis player in the world back four, five, six years ago. Yeah. It was a powerful film to watch and go through and see what What's this man went through. Jeannie, do you remember what the name of that was? Breakpoint. Breakpoint. Oh, that was pretty title. powerful. Oh, okay. Pretty powerful. All right, young lady. Well, you have a blessed one. Appreciate you. And again, holding the space for your grandson. Thank you. All Thanks right, a everybody. Lot. I appreciate it. Hey, you're most welcome. And everybody, have the best year yet of your eternal lives. It's an awesome gift to give the world and blessings. Bye bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.